0: Appreciate you being here tonight. It's been a full weekend, but a good weekend. Uh, our Spanish group had their seminar this weekend. They call it a seminar. We would call it a gospel meeting, probably, but uh, it's the same type of idea. A lot of great things came out of that. We've had a lot going on uh, in the English-speaking groups as well. Um, our teens are off with their area-wide tonight, so a group is over at Woodland Hills with that group. There we have a lot of our young adults leading worship service at the nursing home, so the, the fullness of the weekend is continuing. Uh, but I'm glad we can spend this Sunday night time and worship together. Appreciate you being here. We've been taking our Sunday nights in September and October, doing some questions. Just things that, that people have talked about, come up in conversation over the last few months. And when I first put this little section of lessons together, this is certainly not one that I had in mind. I, of course, had no clue that the world would change the way it has changed the last few weeks. And that there would be a, a war with Hamas and Israel that would uh, rekindle and, and the attack on Israel. And so what happened in the, in the weeks since that has happened is my understanding, and I confess, I, I probably need to be on Facebook and stuff a little more than I am. I might, I might go to the extreme where I'm not on enough to know what's going on in the world. But it sounds like there's been a lot of things put on social media uh, that may not quite ring true biblically, but a lot of people are saying they are. And so a lot of you, some of you, have, have sent, uh, copied and pasted some things you've seen on Facebook and just asked, hey, is this what the Bible really says? Like, it was something I saw on Facebook and somebody said, hey, Christians should think this about what's happening and Christians should see this as a fulfillment of prophecy or whatever. Is that, is that really in the Bible? And so uh, enough of those happened that I thought, why don't we take this last Sunday night that we'll do these questions, and let's try to dig into a few of these things. Uh, if you've been here long enough, um, you, you know in some ways this goes against the way I, I tend to handle these things. Uh, I'm not always eager to preach on whatever people are fighting about on social media. Uh, but this is something that I've, I've never preached on before, and it's something that people are asking questions about right now. So I, I guess I decided, let's just dig into this a little bit. And hopefully there'll be a few things that we might be reminded of from Scripture. Uh, Maybe just help us as best we can, as best I understand it, to try to have a biblically shaped uh, view of what's happening. Now, in some ways, um, how do you feel about Israel? I think a lot of people felt um, the same way, just heartbroken at what happened. Uh, Just as more and more stories came out, I think you couldn't help but feel like, Good grief, sin is ugly, and the world is not our home, and all sorts of feelings like that. um, Just reminds you of the the terrible, vicious cycle that takes place in a lot of places in the world. Revenge cycles, and anger cycles, and violence cycles. Uh, But what I'm not going to do tonight, I'm not going to get political into these things. Uh, I'm not going to give a history of Israel and Palestine and all of that, I don't, I don't know that I'm informed enough to even try that. Uh, I'm sure there are sources that could do much better than I would be able to do on that. I'm just going to try to answer a few questions that, as I said, people have put on social media and Christians have asked. And so you can see those questions on the outline here. We're just going to walk through some of those and do our best with them tonight. As always, uh, there are, I'm sure there will be something that I will not say as, as well as I would like to or something I may not be as informed about as I need to be. So let me know afterwards. I'm learning. I'm, I'm trying to figure things out like everybody else. So feel free to let me know afterwards. Um, and, and if there's any uh, unanswered questions, I refer you to Michael Williams. And he, and he will handle <laughs> whatever, whatever you want to ask. I'll refer to him. But no, we'll, we'll do our best with it tonight. So first question uh, that sometimes comes up on these discussions. Was this supposed to be Israel's land forever? In other words, what some people have said is we should support Israel because this is their God-given land. And and so Christians should be on board with whatever needs to happen to help them have this God-given land. And so that will come from places like Genesis 13 where God gives a promise to Abram. Genesis 13, 14 and 15 says, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him. Do you remember that? When when Abram and Lot had become so wealthy... That Lot, who is Abram's nephew, he says, look, you pick, Lot. You pick which way you want to go, and I'll go the other way. I don't want our people to fight. I don't want our herdsmen to fight. I don't want our stuff to get in the way of each other. Pick which way you want to go. Lot goes toward Sodom and Gomorrah, which, of course, would be a tragic decision for a lot of reasons. Um, And then God tells Abram this afterwards. He says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. And so people see that word forever, and they say, well, there you go. Like this, this is supposed to be Israel's land, so we need to make that happen. You know, God, uh, God established this. So keep that word forever in mind as we go through this. A couple things to say about this. First of all, God's promises of the land were conditional this was a forever promise, but it was a conditional forever promise. And I'm not done with that word forever, so hold on to, to it for a second. God's promises of the land were conditional, and they were conditional on faithfulness to Him. Uh, just like many promises that God makes in Scripture. Um, he will always fulfill His end of the promise, but if we don't fulfill ours, then that promise is removed. So, for example, Deuteronomy 4, verse 40 God is speaking here through Moses. Says, So you shall keep His statutes, His commandments, which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may live long on the land which the Lord your God has given you for all time. So again, you notice the, you keep His commandments, that it may go well with you and your children. That you may live long in the land which God has given you for all time. So there's a, there's a connection here to faithfulness. And that's true throughout the, the Old Testament uh, law. You'll find throughout Deuteronomy, God is saying, now if you don't stay with me, I'm removing my protection. And these other nations will come in, Assyria and Babylon and others in the Old Testament, will come in and, 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 and harm you. I'm, I'm not going to guard you the way I did if you're not faithful to me. So there was a conditional nature To these promises we say what about the word forever what about for all time right there well a lot of times uh, what you find in the old testament is that God's forever promises are fulfilled in bigger ways than just a an earthly physical way so that's what I have up here like other old testament promises God's land promises had an ultimate fulfillment referring to heaven let me give you another example before we look at some verses about this So for example, God tells David when David is going to, uh, he's wanting to build the temple of God and God tells him, I'm going to build you a house, David. (laughs) You want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house and you will always have a son on the throne. And so David's descendants were kings and they were kings and they were kings and it went on down, but then the Babylonian captivity happened and then like, so where, where do the kings go? Well, there's, there's a, a lineage, but it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus became the forever king of the David prophecy. And so it wasn't, it wasn't a forever earthly king. It was bigger than that. They didn't know it, but it was bigger than that. It was going to be this forever heavenly king that Jesus was going to be. And I think the same is true of the land promise. The land promise, this is a forever promise, yes, but it had a fulfillment. And the fulfillment was, we're going somewhere bigger. God's people are going to have a bigger, better land. A land of no tears and no sadness and no sin. where God is really with His people. It's not lesser than the promise, it's bigger than the promise. And so, for example, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, right after he's been talking about Abraham, uh, he's talking about the, the faith that is in living in God's people and the importance of faith. He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Stay with it. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is... A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you see the comparison he's making between the Canaan promise of the Old Testament and heaven? He says, Abraham and them, they, they had that, but they were confessing they were strangers here because they're looking for something bigger. And that something bigger was the real fulfillment of the land promise, which is God's prepared a city for his people, and there's a better country. And that's where we're going. So was the physical land supposed to be Israel's forever? Well, that was dependent on their faithfulness. And it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That that land is, is heaven for God's people. And so that's what the forever promise was about. Um, it doesn't mean we, we shouldn't support Israel. and We'll get to that. But that's not, I don't understand that to be what the Bible teaches, that in, in some way we have to hold that because of what God said to Abraham. Number two, second question. Is it wrong to oppose Israel? I've seen this in some of the things you've you've cut and pasted and sent. Aren't they God's chosen people? Um, Sometimes people have asked this question. So that comes also from some Abraham promises. And remember, maybe I'm assuming too much here. I apologize if I am. Um, The Israelites, the Jews, come through Abraham. That's where these promises started. Abraham was the father of the the chosen people of God throughout the Old Testament. These chosen people of God, his his family. Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had the 12 sons, which would be the 12 tribes. So it was his family. And so these Abraham promises are, are the Jewish people, the Jewish race. And so Genesis 12, 3, God is speaking to Abraham. Abram at this time. He hadn't changed his name to Abraham yet. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So what apparently some people have said is, all right, that says God will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. So we need to support Israel. Well, that's not what that verse is saying. Now, we don't see it easily in an English translation, but the yous there in verse 3, those are singular yous. God is talking to Abram. He says, I will bless you, Abram, those who bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. This is not an everybody promise, so I think they're misunderstanding a little bit. Um, but let's think about the whole idea for just a second of, of them, of the Jews being God's chosen people. As you come to the New Testament, you find that is fulfilled in a bigger way also. And the bigger way is in the Christian age, God's chosen people are Christians of every nation. Not just Israelites, but Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are those who are not Jewish. as everybody else. All these other nations is the way the Bible refers to it. And the Bible, the gospel goes to all nations. God tells the apostles to take it to all nations. And so the gospel goes everywhere and all nations who come to God, those are the chosen people. Let's put some verses up here so you can see it for yourself that uh, and and you'll notice what's happening in these verses what the bible is saying is it is not just the physical descendants of abraham who are god's chosen people it is those who have the faith of abraham that are god's chosen people so romans 9 6 through 8 for example says it is not as though the word of god has failed for they're not all israel who are descended from israel so just because you're descended from israel doesn't mean you're you're really Israel. Do you see what he's saying there? It's a a wordplay, but I hope it's clear. Just because you're Israel doesn't mean you're Israel. In other words, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're really God's people. Nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. Because God has chosen before, is the idea here. Through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. So it's going to be those who who trust in the promise of God. That's who the people of God really are in in the Christian age. Another verse here, Romans chapter 2. I believe I've got this one and two more. Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter... And his praise is not from men, but from God. So again, it's not an outward thing. It's not a racial thing anymore. In the Old Testament, it was. Now you could be joined, in the Old Testament, you could be joined to Israel by following the one true God. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch seems to have been one of those people who had sort of come alongside Israel to worship the one true God. You could be an Israelite and sort of leave Israel. You could decide you were an Israelite just didn't follow God anymore. So... But, but in general, it was a racial thing. It was a Jewish thing. New Testament says Jesus comes, Christian age, that's not it anymore. It is you are in Christ or you're not. Those are the chosen people of God. It's not just who's in the flesh. The people of God, the, the spiritual Jews are those who are really following the Lord. Galatians chapter 3. This is part of what Samuel read just a second ago. Galatians 3, 7 through 9 says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith, who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, so notice what he's saying. It's not just Jews. He would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. (laughs) That's what puts you in the promise of Abraham, is to show the faith Abraham had, the faith that puts yourself into following God. Um, It's not a racial thing. Uh, the, The Jews are not the chosen people of God today. Christians are the chosen people of God today. And then one last verse that makes this clear. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. As Peter writes this letter, he's writing to Christians, Jews and Gentiles. In fact, verse 10 makes clear he's thinking about Gentiles here as he writes this. But notice what he says in verse 9. And the capital letters in the New American Standard Translation, these are... These are quotes, references to the Old Testament passages. So he's echoing Old Testament promises of the chosen people and how they're fulfilled in Christians. Verse 9, But you are a chosen race. A chosen, chosen race? What's that? Christians, you are a chosen race, a chosen people, your translation might say. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Gentiles. You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Um, so is it, is it wrong to oppose Israel? Uh, did God say he'll bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel? That was a promise for Abraham. And the, the, cho- the chosen people of God today, not Israel, spiritual Israel, it's Christians. And, and so sometimes people misunderstand that uh, as they look at the Bible. Number three, now this gets real exciting. Uh, will there be a final battle near Jerusalem? So anytime anything happens uh, around Jerusalem or Israel... Uh, you will see someone say, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And I don't always know what, I'll confess, I don't always know what they're talking about. You know, like Sometimes I'll see things and think, I, I have to spend a lot of time in the Bible with my job, and I don't have a clue where this is coming from. So I've had to dig a little bit on some of this this week. Now, now the basics that I knew I'll, I'll put up here tonight. Um, but they connect some Old Testament things that I'm not sure connect as well as, as some people seem to think they do. But uh, let's, let's put up here what people usually refer to, and we'll do our best with it. Uh, because what people are saying is, okay, uh, there's looks like there might be a war around Israel. So this means Jesus will be here soon. Like we're we're near the last day. Now, I believe we're closer to the last day than we've ever been before. But I don't, I don't think the Bible is saying uh, that, well, there's a... But, we'll, but let me show you what they're saying, and then we'll deal with it. Revelation 16, 13 through 16. So you notice there's only 22 chapters in Revelation. So we're getting near the end of the last book of the Bible. He says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. Wish I knew more about what it means by that. Does it mean they, they were frogs in this vision? They moved like frogs? Not sure I fully understand it. It says, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. So you see what it's saying there? We're, we're gathering the nations together for the war of the day of God. So, so you see where it's coming from. You know, it's not, you know, I, I can understand where people are, are coming from on this. So we gather all these people together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Uh, they gather them, verse 16, in the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And your Bible may just simply say Armageddon. So the reason we have movies called Armageddon, the reason when people are thinking about the end of time, they say, well, this is Armageddon. Well, this is where this comes from. Um, because uh, Revelation 16, 16 says that all these armies gathered together in Armageddon. Now, as you see, I put here in brackets, what Armageddon or Armageddon means is the Mount of Megiddo. Now, what's tough about that, and I've never been to Megiddo, so I'm, I'm counting on people who are writing these things. They say there's not a mountain there. And so now Megiddo was a place where there were several pretty well-known battles in the Old Testament. Uh, Josiah died trying to fight the Egyptians. King Josiah, we mentioned this morning, one of the revivals, he died fighting the Egyptians around Megiddo. But there's not a mountain. So, so even that itself makes it sound like there may be some symbolic thing going on here. But the army theme continues, or the war theme continues in Revelation 19:19. He says, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now you notice him who sat on the horse, that's a capital H. And his army is a capital H. So that's talking about Jesus as Jesus has appeared earlier in uh, in this section of Revelation. But you see what they're saying. So the armies gather together. But you notice in this verse... It's not just a generic war in Jerusalem. Like, this is picturing all the armies trying to fight against Jesus. Like, there's some sort of battle against Jesus himself. So keep that in mind. I mean, that, that's, that doesn't fit just there might be World War III around Israel. That's not, that's not what that's describing. And then Revelation 20, and there's a lot of questions about what the thousand years might mean here in Revelation 20. But it says, when the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and that's a reference to Old Testament passages that also talk about the nations gathering against Jerusalem, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So people say, well, that sounds like Jerusalem, the beloved city, the camp of the saints, though. I mean, if we're talking about Christians in the New Testament, uh, that, I don't know that that fits. So it, but in some way, they're surrounding God's people, and then fire comes down from heaven and devours them, and the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. So people look at those verses, and they say, what those verses in Revelation say is that the end of time is going to come when there's all these nations gathered in this battle near Jerusalem. And Jesus comes, and he wipes them out, and, and that's the last day. I guess to all that I would say, maybe, maybe, but I, I don't know that I can speak confidently on any of those things. I mean, for example, I mean, I can look at some other Revelation passages and say, would you say for sure that heaven has golden streets and that all the gates are, are made of different types of jewels? Are, can you say that there's only 144,000 people who are saved? Are, are we saying that Satan is a dragon? It's actually like there's, there's so much symbolism in Revelation that without having some clear passages outside of these symbolic, I'm really hesitant to say, yes, that is what's going to happen. And so I guess this is my conclusion from all that. I, I, if I understand those battle ideas correctly, and I could be wrong, if we get to heaven, and, and I find out I'm, I'm wrong about this, you can come up to me, make fun of me about it. That's fine. You can come up, and say, hey Tim, there was, there was a battle, wasn't there? Yeah, you were you were wrong. That's fine. That's fine. But if I understand this right, this is probably symbolic. I mean, they're fighting against Jesus here. They're not not fighting. They're not just fighting each other. Revelation 19 says they're trying to fight against Jesus. Yeah, they're fighting against the saints. Revelation 20 says. It doesn't say they're just fighting each other over whatever. And so this is probably symbolic, referring to God's final conquering of evil. That's how I understand this. And there's a lot I don't claim to fully understand about the images and symbolism of Revelation. But if I understand it right, what it's saying is, when Jesus comes back, that's when evil is going to be finally conquered. That all the kings, all the nations that have been prideful and rebellious in sin, it will be this final judgment of sin. And Jesus takes care of all that. All these nations that have tried to hurt God's people along the way, all these nation, and that's a big part of what Revelation is talking about, that the Christians are being persecuted by, by Rome. And so all these nations that have tried to hurt you, Jesus takes care of that on this final conquering. So one more verse on that before our last section here. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 6-10. Uh, and again, he's writing here to Christians um, who are suffering. The Thessalonian Christians were, uh, were suffering for their faith. And he's talking about the last day. And he says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So Jesus will come back with his angels in flaming fire and the earth and its works will be burned up and evil will be judged. Verse 8 says he will be dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. (coughs) Excuse me. So do you see there the idea that Jesus comes um, to punish evil once and for all? I guess that's my understanding of what Revelation is talking about. And again, if we find out there's, there was a deeper meaning there, that's fine. I, I, but I worry, at the very least, people are talking way too confidently about what they think Revelation is saying about this last day and about war uh, in the East. So we've said several things. Should Christians support Israel just because the land's always supposed to be theirs? I don't think that's what the Bible's saying. Should Christians support Israel um, because they're God's chosen people? I believe Christians are God's chosen people today. Well, maybe there are some better reasons to support. If you support that, maybe maybe there's some some better reasons. And maybe the better reason would be uh, we want to support what is good as Christians. So Romans 12, verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor or hate, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So if you believe the cause is good, if you believe they've been, they've been hurt and have the right to defend themselves, then that's, that's a more biblical reason to support. And somebody says, well, well, is that right? I mean, doesn't the Bible say you're not supposed to take revenge on your enemies? Well, I'm not supposed to take revenge on my enemies, and you're not supposed to take revenge on your enemies. But the Bible gives nations the right to use force for good. Now, sometimes that's a tricky thing to define what exactly is good. But the Bible does teach that, that God gives human governments what Romans 13 calls the sword to use for good. And so, if you believe Israel's been wronged and hurt and has the right to try to root out evil, then yes, support that. Support that. Um, But... Maybe not for some of the reasons we've said. Let's look at this Romans 13 passage. Romans 13, 3 and 4 says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. And he's, just, he's talking about you know, the, the Roman government in general at this point. Uh, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. So God has, in this whole section, there's more to study on this section too, but you hear what he's telling Christians. You just do the right thing. God has given rulers this right to rule, but they're supposed to rule for good. Notice how he describes the governments of the world in verse 4. They're supposed to be ministers of God to you for good. They're supposed to uphold what is right. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. This is what God expects the rulers of the world to be in, in governing nations they, they have the right to use force police forces, army forces but they're supposed to use them for good, to bring wrath on evil and so I guess our hope my, my hope is that that's what Israel will do, that they will use it appropriately and for good and, and now what is wise and what is not wise, I'm, I'm way above my pay grade on that stuff Got no clue what's smart, what's the right reaction, what's the wrong reaction. You'll have much better opinions on that than I will have. But God does give governments the right, as America has done through the years, to use the sword for for avenging evil. And again, that brings up all sorts of difficult questions on on what exactly constitutes good in in wars and battles that I think very few people celebrate all the, the difficulty that comes along with that. If you want to support Israel, not because the Bible says you have to, no matter what they do. It's because uh, you believe their cause is right, and you believe that God has given them the right to defend themselves. So we want to support what is good and what is just whenever we can. And that's where, uh, that's where maybe I land on this. Let's support what's good. If they're, if they're doing good, let's support it. Let's support it. If, if, if America's doing good, let's support it. If you're doing good, we want to support it. We want to support what is good and just uh, whenever we can. Again, I'm sure there's something I have not said the right way tonight. I'm sure there's something I should have said differently. Let me know. Um I and just to just to quickly summarize real quick, the the land was it supposed to be Israel's land forever. Those were conditional promises. They've been fulfilled in a bigger way in heaven. It's not a it's not a a promise for here. Is it wrong to oppose Israel because God's going to curse us if we don't? I don't believe they're God's chosen people. I believe Christians are God's chosen people. Will there be a final battle near Jerusalem? I don't think so, but, but who knows? We'll find out. I think what he's saying in Revelation is that God will come to judge evil. I don't think this is any sort of uh, promise that the end is near. Um, God, had, God does give governments the right to use force for good. Let's be praying that that is what will happen. Uh, Not only now, but in the coming days, years, whatever. For our nation's um, decisions on that as well. I guess I want to end there. Final reminder, let's be praying. Uh, A lot of times when big world events happen that are flashed all over the news, um, my first reaction is, not a lot I can do about it. And, and in some ways, I think I've almost used that as like a self-defense mechanism. Like, I don't want to get too worked up. I don't want to get too upset. Like, there's not a lot I can do about it. I don't want to, I don't want to be upset the rest of the day because things are bad and, you know, whatever. Um, but, but if you believe that God is in control of his world, and if you believe that God can shape the events of the world as I do, then you absolutely can do something about it. And I absolutely could do something about it. And maybe even bigger things than anybody else can do something about. It. And so let's be praying. God gives big promises about prayer. We're, we're here in the middle of a 40 days of prayer as a church. Um, maybe, maybe the people in this room will end up being the ones that shape how events across the world end up turning out because God hears and listens and responds to His people's prayers. Here's what God has been known to do. God has been known to take terrible things And we've seen some terrible things a couple weekends ago with the attack. God has been known to take terrible things and bring some good things out of it. God has been known to to take terrible things and end up producing a better future for His people, for the world, by being able to work in events and bring some good things out of it. Let's be praying that God will be doing what He always does, that He will keep acting, that He will keep working, and that things will come out exactly the way that is best for his plan. So a lot of things we may or may not know about why things happen, uh, and even some of these questions we talked about tonight. But let's be praying, trusting that God does answer those prayers and will respond to them. We're about to sing a song called I Surrender All. And I love, I love that first verse, uh, that first little phrase we're about to sing. All, notice that word all. I don't want to give God part of my life I don't want to give God just a little bit of my life. God calls us to give Him everything. And that's what He's done for us. Jesus gave us everything. Jesus dies on the cross for us. God never asks more of us than he's, than he's given for us. And so as we sing this song, if we can help you in any way, let us know. It's an invitation song. It's a chance to come before the church family uh, for something in your life that maybe you'd like prayers about. It's a chance to come before the church family, maybe to become a Christian. If you're ready to put on Christ and baptism tonight, we'd love to see you do that. If we can help you in any way, please come to the front now while we stand and while we sing. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence.